Welcome to episode 26 of No Wristbands We Drink for Free. This is Papa Novak, and my usual co-host Mark is off on a family trip, so I've got a guest host and fellow Chicago music fan, Wade Iverson, joining me. On this episode, we have the pleasure of talking with Bruce Adams about his experience as the co-founder of Cranky Records, and we get into detail about his new book, You're With Stupid. As always, we talk a lot about Chicago. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at No Wristbands. We've also got a No Wristbands Facebook group. And be sure to check out our Dig In blog at NoWristbands.com. Welcome to the show today. Um, you're here with uh, Papa Novak and uh, my normal co-host, uh, Mark Joyner, had to go out of town. So uh, we've got a guest host here, Wade Iverson, longtime uh, music fan and musician and uh, and uh, roustabout. And uh, so he's going to be joining us. He's a big cranky fan. Um, and our guest today is Bruce Adams, who was uh, the co-founder of of Cranky Records, and recently, last year, came out with a great new book called You're With Stupid, uh, subtitled Cranky Chicago and the Reinvention of Indie Music. Um, great book. Everybody should read it. And uh, uh, Wade, uh, glad to have you here. Good to be here. And Bruce, glad to have you, too. Thank you. Um in, in general, we kind of talk these things through a little bit chronologically, and um, uh, certainly your move uh, to Chicago, I think, what was it, 87? Um, That's right, summer of 87. Yeah, I think a lot of the formative uh, events for you, uh, at least at the beginning, involved uh, your work with Kaleidoscope distributor, distributors and Touch and Go Records and Cargo distributors. And, um, um, you know, f- from reading the book, I mean, there was a lot of key people in the Chicago scene that worked at a bunch of those places with you. And so maybe kind of talk about how, how that all got started and how, how formative it was for you. Well, um I would I would start off for anyone who maybe is not that uh, aware of how records were distributed then and now. Sure. Is that uh, there were a number of wholesale record distributors across the country who would bring in consolidate orders from various record labels and then send them out to stores. Uh, and that's what Kaleidoscope did. Uh, in the book, I described them as a out-of-the-box distributor because they didn't have any exclusive labels. They didn't manufacture any record labels for any any other uh, labels. Basically, a bunch of boxes came in from overseas and from various places across the United States. We cracked them open. We put them in other boxes, and we dispersed them across the United States. Um, It was an interesting operation, to say the least. Mm -hmm. The owner was a guy named Nick Hodges, uh, often referred to among those who know as Nick the Greek, uh, a man for whom ordinary rules of commerce, good sense, and uh, obedience to the law were nebulous concepts that did not restrain him from acting as he mm-hmm. wished. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so there were, uh, it was a, it was a great experience for me in the sense of, I saw how, uh, record labels were treated. I saw how records came into the United States were, uh, sold to record stores and then shipped to record stores. Uh, and I got to meet a bunch of people, all of whom went on to do uh, interesting and incredible things in Chicago. One of the one of the sort of formative experiences about that was understanding just how many people were at the core of what you would consider the music scene. The people who were in bands, but working in warehouses or coffee shops or record mm -hmm. stores, the, the uh, record labels, people who were working full-time at something else and running a record label at night and on the weekends or uh, people like Corey and Lisa Rusk at Touch and Go who were operating a full-time record label. Uh, I was able to witness from afar the rise of wax tracks to become a really dominant mm -hmm. force in independent music. And uh, I was uh, able to enjoy the, uh, the good times at Des Plains, Illinois has to offer. <laughs> A young uh -huh. man on the make, right? Um, and I, you know, I I touch on this a bit in the book. I appreciated how the location of O'Hare and the air connections to other parts of the country and the world really helped to make Chicago a center for the music business. Uh -huh. um, and then uh, I got myself working part time at Touch and Go, and I went to work full time at Touch and Go. Uh, as a record promoter, and that was a uh, that was a a great job, a great experience meeting all kinds of people, be it uh, people at radio stations, record stores, fanzines. Uh, I really I really gained a ton of contacts uh, in a fun way. Many of whom I reconnected with since this book came out. I've had uh -huh. a chance to meet and talk with people that I never really met in meat world as the kids say mm -hmm. now um uh, i i would assume that in nick the greek was he he might have liked music but i i would assume he was in it to make some money right um oh yeah he loved music he's he could tell you more about psychedelic music say okay and the lesser known bands of the san francisco scene or europe or whatever than virtually anyone i know wow um Big, big fan of that. Mm -hmm. Really big fan of uh, the folding green stuff, though. Uh-huh, right. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, Corey or Corey and Lisa, you know, at Touch and Go, um, you know, they they were more about, hey, I want to, I, I love these bands. I want to treat them right. I want this to be fair. We might make some money off of it, maybe not. But um, they kind of, I think, kind of set the tone for record labels that followed mm -hmm. in Chicago, at least. Oh, beyond a doubt. Yeah. Uh, they uh, they were scrupulously honest, mm -hmm. uh, could account for every penny, uh, were uh, generous with their time and support. I'll tell you uh, the time since I have never been to a party like a touch and go party. <laughs> um, and that you know those would start after bands loaded out from a show at three or 4 a.m. and the barbecue would be going and, and there'd be drinks and there'd be people from all over. Uh, it was a 
animals. They had a ton of dogs and cats, uh-huh. frogs, lizards, snakes. Uh, vivid, vivid, vivid. If I, you know, if if there was a Netflix show about it, people would not believe it. They would uh-huh. think it, it, it was made up. Now, now, how did those parties uh, differ from the cranky parties? Cranky parties. Uh, uh, Were there cranky parties? I'll tell you a funny story. So um, people have asked me if they're, because uh, Cranky's coming up on its 30th anniversary, mm-hmm. if Joel and I would have a festival. And he's had a, he's had a couple of ones since I left. At the time, when we got to our 10th anniversary, 15th anniversary, people would ask, you going to have a festival? And we'd say, yeah, we're going to have all the bands get together and play at a barn in Wisconsin just for us. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, uh, and actually Joel and his girlfriend, then Sarah Bowden, used to have these fantastic Fourth of July parties at their house in Albany uh-huh. Park, uh-huh. Um, which people could tell you about same sort of deal, just during the during the when the sun was out. Uh huh. So, um, yeah, but the, there were there were certain factors in a touch and go party, like uh, let's say factor Yao, <laughs> uh, which made which gave them a little uh, zippity doo dah that uh-huh. other parties would not have. Uh huh. Excellent. And um, yeah, so it was a it was a great experience for me. My Rolodex got nice and fat, mm-hmm. and uh, that was the other great thing about Touch and Go. Corey and Lisa were not uh, greedy with their contacts. They were not proprietary about the connections I was making. Uh, there was a sense that we're all part of this network across the country and really across the world. Uh, And it was all for the perpetuation of the music scene. So it was sort of a uh, rising tide that lifted all boats. Everybody everybody shared information, shared contacts. I think I write about it in the book that thousands of records would be shipped thousands of miles just based on the uh, reputation that an individual or a company might have. Mm-hmm. Right. Same thing with booking shows, right? Like people who travel hundreds of miles uh, to a to a shack in Lawrence, Kansas, based on what other bands had told them and uh, sure. the reputation of the people they were doing business with. Right. Right. Now, uh, I think if I remember uh, in the book, you worked with Joel at Cargo. Um, yeah. Did Did you know him before that? Um, only, only by look. Okay. Um, he would, he would come by the cargo warehouse, or he would he would come by the touch and go warehouse to either pick things up or drop things off, and I would see him then, and we would exchange what I call the universal dude sign, mm-hmm. which is this. <laughs> You guys know what I'm talking about. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Seen that. I once exchanged the Universal Dude sign with Rahm Emanuel when he was still in Congress <laughs> in Andersonville, this restaurant by the uh, called the Delwood Pickle. Mm-hmm. In the day, and I, he was sitting out there having a drink or a meal, and I went, and he went, <laughs> believe it or not, 
This is a test of character. The members of Urge Overkill would never exchange the Universal Dudes. <laughs> That's not surprising, I guess. <laughs> not surprising. I think it has something to do with the tightness of pants. <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed. So, uh, you you know, at, at some point, you and Joel start having these conversations about, you know, hey, maybe we should uh, do a record label, you know? We can't do worse than these guys. <laughs> right. Uh, Argo was a great lesson in a lot of ways about how not to do things they were uh, they're originally a canadian distributor got the rights to a lot of the american indie rock labels exclusive in canada whether it was epitaph or touch and go or discord did mm -hmm. a great job uh decided they wanted to expand into the united states they did so first in san diego and uh they signed rocket from the crypt which was a brilliant decision on their part mm -hmm. they had uh they had signed and put out records by uh shadowy men on a shadowy planet were becoming very big they'd done the sound they'd done the theme to kids in the hall really popular show a lot of people know about they had these so they had these great sort of workhorses pulling the wagon so to speak and then uh they opened up their office in chicago and they started adding to the workhorse's burden. The, the wagon started getting filled up with other releases and other exclusive record labels. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, uh, they had more. They had too much going on. It was a it was a wonderful lesson for us uh, in the pitfalls of volume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do, as do... was you know um, to get off topic a little bit as was observing Wax Tracks. Because mm. uh, Wax Tracks were doing great with mi the ministry singles they had, with Revolt and Cox, with Front 242, mm -hmm. but they signed a, a distribution agreement with a Belgian label and just started putting stuff out and putting stuff out and putting stuff out. And, uh, you know, I think I quote Patrick Monaghan in the book that, uh, you know, there's no substitute for cash flow. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, especially in that in that business where uh, the standard term of an invoice is ninety days, the standard payment on an invoice was one hundred and twenty days. Maybe if you were lucky, mm -hmm. and if you're doing business with Nick the Greek, uh, maybe one hundred and sixty days. Mm -hmm. If you were if you were being lucky, yeah, uh, and, that, and there were a lot of Nick the Greeks around. And then after that, the returns come back. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Returns come back. You um, cargo had this problem a little bit. Uh, you get the you get the great you get the great distribution to chain stores, or later on to Amazon, for example. Mm -hmm. And your funny little underground rock bands don't really sell to those customers. So the returns come back, mm -hmm. and what you thought what you thought was a nice fat invoice. It turns out to be a negative invoice. Right. Yes. You're losing money. You're losing money. Right. And yeah. of course you shell out, you pay the pressing plant, you know, on, you know, cash on receipt, you know, mm -hmm. they don't give you terms unless right. you're, you know, very fortunate. Yeah. And they don't take returns either. They don't. No. <laughs> no. So cargo was a great, cargo was a great lesson for us. 
And I like to joke that, um, and I think this is still true, most on the Friday of every week, the chief topic of conversation among most Americans is my boss, crazy or stupid? <laughs> uh -huh. So we had a lot of Friday conversations. Uh -huh. um, and we, uh, we began to determine uh, some guidelines for how we would do it if we were about, to, if we were going to do it. Uh, which were very productive, very, very helpful when the time came for mm -hmm. us to actually get underway. It, did, did it seem like, you, you know, you and Joel were basically on the same page on almost everything, like really compatible, like this, this you know, this is this is somebody I can count on and, and rely on and all of that? Exactly. Joel was and is the sort of person you call up when the movers that you had hired to move your apartment uh -huh. don't show up. Uh-huh. Yes. Cool. That's the, that's the man he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the success crank has had over the years, and the fact that you can look at the van, you can look at the label, and you can say, oh, um, people who are in the first, the first generation of bands are still putting out records with them. I think proves the point. Right, for sure. Yes, that's very significant. So uh, I have a question for you, Bruce. I'm uh, I'm wondering how many ECM records you own. Well, I would say minimum of thirty. Mostly vinyl. Yeah. Mostly vinyl. I used to uh, I used to take a trip on the weekends. I would go. Because I, I lived on the far north side of Chicago, so about 5200 north. Can I be Chicagoan for a while? Oh, yeah. Over by, over by your Fosters and your Damons over sure. by there. Yeah, um, that's, that's pretty much where we live. Yeah. So I would, uh, I would drive up uh, to a couple of record stores in Evanston and then scoot over to... Uh, Scoot over to Skokie, yeah, a little alliterated there, mm -hmm. uh, where there were a bunch of record stores, and I would, I can't remember the name of one of them, they're long gone, but uh, they would basically have these huge bins or racks of ECM cassettes and mm -hmm. ECM CDs and LPs, and I would just load up uh, because you can't you can't lose. You know, but the, in those days with the cutout bin, and ECM switched their distributors, their manufacturing agreement, I think at least four times in my lifetime. So every time they said, we're not with Polygram anymore, now we're with BMG. All the Polygram records get cut out. That is to say, whatever they have in stock, uh -huh. they put a little notch in it, and they sell it at under production costs just to get them out of their warehouse. So I would be like, Oh wow, Bill Frizzell, dollar ninety nine. Oh, you know John Abercrombie. Who's this guy? Yeah, you know Paul Geiger. Could not miss. Right. You know, even right. if it wasn't the greatest record ever, there were there were nuggets there, and I liked the I liked the style of the record label. Yeah, I was building my ECM vinyl collection at that time as well, and uh, have recently done some editing of that. And find that uh, Dusty Groove is is enthusiastic to uh, to take those off my hands. 
Um, did you happen to see the Steve Tibbetts and Mark Anderson show at Edge of the Looking Glass in 1989? I did not. Are you familiar with Tibbetts? I know Tibbetts very well, yeah. Yeah. he. I was excited. Well, that show, for one, was pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, he they released an anthology called Hell, uh, Hellhound on My Trail mm -hmm. uh, last year, um, where he, I think, kind of remixed and remastered like a bunch of the sort of mid-period records. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an amazing sounding uh, document. Um, but I was always a big fan of, of Tibbetts and kind of went down the rabbit hole with him. And there's some footage of him playing live from 85. I think that's on maybe a public access channel in, in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And it's filmed completely professionally. And it's, it's pretty amazing. It's up on YouTube. Um, I'll check it out. You know, yeah. What's interesting over the years, especially as Cranky got underway and I would speak to various musicians on the label, was how many of them were familiar with ECM artists, yeah. uh, what an influence it had been on them, uh, you know, especially Tibbetts, especially the guitar players, mm -hmm. uh, because they got that hazy drifting sound down but they also were you know were tied into a rhythmic sensibility or uh you know i was a big fan of a uh, paul geiger who did a, mm -hmm. a recording in shark cathedral and i find out all these all these people i'm working with have that record as well huh. uh, Tibbetts did an amazing record i think two years ago a year ago on ecm he's He's still got it beyond a doubt. Yeah, he's a quite an amazing man, um, from what I can tell. There's some there's some really good interviews with him. Uh, actually, I think that's up on the ECM site, where he kind of talks about his life. I think he was an academic, may still be an academic, mm -hmm. but then as you know, very he did those records with the with the nun, the Buddhist monk. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember her name. Chol Ying Trolma might be her name. Um, but it's interesting that I can see that sort of overlap between ECM and Cranky somewhat. Um, I was, as I went back, as I went back to listen to a, a bunch of the Cranky records, um, did, uh, did you... Did you guys ever provide uh, recording budgets for once you got established? And did you provide recording budgets or and or were the bands mostly self-recorded? I would say 70, around 75% of the bands were self-recorded. We did provide budgets, uh, say in the case of Jessamine, they used that budget to buy their own equipment mm -hmm. to record themselves. Uh, Radford did their first recording at American University at night because they had a Rob Christensen, a friend of theirs, had a, was going to school there and had access to the university uh, studios, which were very nice, but they had to do it at night when other people weren't using it. 
Uh, and then eventually Le Bradford uh, recorded at a studio in uh, Richmond where they live named Sound of Music. Um, other bands, other bands did a mixture of things. Uh, two weekends ago, I was in New York uh, doing a book event and I met a guy named John at the the uh, space where the event was held and John had John was a is a New Zealander and had lent his apartment to Roy Montgomery mm. he lent his and that's the uh, famous apartment where Roy had recorded Temple Four for cranky scenes from the South Island mm -hmm. in six months he recorded a ridiculous amount of, you know something like eight singles and three albums on a on a four track that John uh, John had said, hey, yeah, you can stay in my apartment for a while while I'm elsewhere. Yeah, I got this four-track tape deck over in the corner there. I can't seem to get it work mm -hmm. working. Roy got it working. I still have my vinyl of scenes from the South Island, and I can't... Did aid Who put that out? I think Drunken Fish. I want to say oh, Drunken Fish. maybe so. But I'm not, I couldn't say for sure. I have the CD. Okay. Um, yeah, so one of the, not quite a condition of signing with Cranky, but one of the, one of the benefits of the people we worked with is they were by and large, very self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. They were working on their own music. Uh, again, last weekend I had, uh, I did this book event and I talked with Martha Schwendener from the New York band Bowery Electric. And they had financed their own recording even before they signed to Cranky. They had put mm -hmm. out a double seven-inch single all on their own. They, you know, she said that uh, in the course of the event, she said that they had uh, played a show at the Pyramid Club in New York, one of their first shows, uh, in front of three or four people. And I said, that didn't matter to us at Cranky. What mattered to us is that you booked the show to begin with. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, that you had the... You had the gumption to go out and do those things on your own and you weren't waiting around for someone to discover you. Right. Well, yeah. your book certainly prompted me to go back into the catalog and um, I went back to that, the first Bowery electric record that you guys did and something that I heard in that that uh, I didn't probably realize at the time, um, there's a track called Fear of Flying yeah. and... I immediately was like, you know, this is shoegaze. This there's this is almost like uh I don't know if you were familiar with the band Abyssidarians. They yeah. were sort of in a kind of that same sort of I remember Abyssidarians because uh speaking of cutouts, I got they did a I think they did a twelve inch on factory or factory Benelux. Um which for me was a must-have. You know, anything mm -hmm. I saw in factory, I grabbed. And this is sort of a Nick the Greek moment because uh, cutouts were coming in of factory and factory Benelux records that were made in Italy. And so mm -hmm. Italian pressings then were terrible, terrible. Uh -huh. You could see little, you know, you could see what looked like little bits of sawdust in the <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. but they were dirt cheap. Did so, you? Did you see Bowery Electric? Like, were you, um, did you see them in that sort of light, um, in in that sort of shoegaze thing? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. we were, we definitely, we definitely heard some My Bloody Valentine in there. And, yep. Uh, of course, they went on to do some touring with Sonic Boom from the Spaceman 3. You know, we definitely heard some of that and what they were doing. Uh, they had, though, I think, more of a, a rhythmic juggernaut approach than those bands. Um, yeah, yeah. I they reminded right. me a little, they went on to, to do it. The, the last American tour they did when they were on Cranky is they had Robert Hampson from Loop doing sound for them. And right. I really saw them uh, really in the vein of that band because I thought Loop were always a little more uh, muscular, let's say, than some of the other bands. Okay. They were thrown in with the English shoegazing bands. Yeah, I know more of Hampson's main stuff than I do of the Loop stuff, but I, it makes me want to go back to that to the loop stuff. A Gilded Eternity is fun. Um, when I worked at Touch and Go, Loop played a show at CBGB's with the Jesus Lizard. <laughs> uh, and this is a this is a great example of how things worked back then. Loop were on Beggar's Banquet. Uh, They're playing in CBGB's. You know, the Jesus Lizard were the Jesus Lizard. You know, maybe the best live band mm -hmm. in the world at that point. Certainly yep. the best two or three. Mm -hmm. uh, They'd been in other bands before. They had a reputation. They played New York before. Loop's label bought them 200 promo tickets for various movers and shakers in New York or, you know, various parasites, as I would prefer to call them. And, uh, you know, I was, I think I was talking to somebody from the band on the phone or maybe their booking agent. And I went, and Jesus was here, and I just, we had to laugh. Mm -hmm. Do you know how small that room is? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. CBGB is not a big place. <laughs> um, it was just, it was just funny the you know, the waste of resources mm -hmm. in those days. Yeah. By major labels or ostensibly indie labels like Beggar's Banquet or who were really somewhere in the middle, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, and I know that uh, whatever you and Joel had your uh, uh, cranky commandments or whatever, um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure that part of this was simply what you were referring to earlier, like you knew you had a limited cash flow, everything you did had to be for a purpose and had to be successful or you weren't going to be able to afford to put out the next record. So right. um, I'm sure a lot of that went into it um, when you were choosing bands, recruiting bands, trying, you know, trying to work together with bands. And you said, you know, you, uh, it, it, it wasn't by chance that you ended up with bands that were able to self-record or, um, you know, I'm sure you were very transparent about it, you know, kind of like touch and go was with their bands, mm -hmm. you know, very transparent about, look, here's what we do. This is what we pay for. This is what you get. And everybody understands that everybody's on the same page. And so in spite of the fact that, you know, you're not going to go out and sell 50,000 records or something, you can still make money if you do it right. Yeah, that was the goal. The, you know, the immediate goal was uh, to be self-supporting. Right to be able to to have each record ultimately contribute something to a pool mm -hmm. that would allow us to keep the business going. Right. Um, 
and that was good and fine. The other thing was uh, I worked for Cranky for 13 years before I went to work full time for it. Right. Joel, same thing a little a little a little earlier, but we uh, we did not pay ourselves a lot of money mm-hmm. to do what we were doing. Everything went back into that pool uh, t- to keep uh, to keep the label operating uh, and to keep to keep things moving forward. It was uh, in a way it was sort of a deal with the bands. Right. You know, it was un- unspoken, but I think they understood. Joel and I were not making our, you know, we're not mm-hmm. cashing out. We weren't making ourselves rich. Uh, we both worked at Cargo for a long time. And then he left first working at Reckless, tending bar. Mm-hmm. I left later to work at Facets Multimedia. Uh, we kept our day jobs right. for, for a long time until we were absolutely sure, you know, that things can support us. Uh, and still be able to keep the record label going. Now, did you have, during this time, did you have many conversations with other labels? Like, how are you guys doing this? How do you do this? And and sometimes maybe you're shaking your head at the way other labels are doing something and, and, and thinking, like, they're not going to last long. Yeah. Um, I talked a lot with Patrick Monaghan from Carrot Top mm-hmm. um, because we'd worked together at, at a kaleidoscope before he came to and then he went to then he went to a wax track store mm, right right uh and he could tell he would tell me stories of danny or, or jim uh, walking over from the label offices or coming downstairs from the label offices into the store opening the cash register and taking out cash for label stuff <laughs> um so uh, and then uh, later on, when we worked at, at Cargo together, I had friends who worked at Wax Tracks, and uh, I had friends who worked at the Wax Tracks warehouse. And so I got a, a secondhand view of what was going on there, which was mm-hmm. incredible success matched with uh, incredible profligacy on the release front they're, mm-hmm. they're putting out all these records uh from groups on the play it against sam label from belgium uh play it against sam was and is a very successful distributor over there but uh and wax tracks had started out by taking uh licensing front 242 which you know was a massive massive mm-hmm. band for them but they yeah you know, they kept bringing things over so you guys may have been familiar with, say, in the mid-90s, late-90s, going to Reckless or another record store in town and looking through the used bins and just seeing wax tracks, wax tracks, wax tracks, wax tracks, wax tracks. Hmm. Um, you know, you can't you can't keep that up. Uh-huh. Indefinitely. Right. And they didn't. Um, so we... That we talked with people about that a lot of times. Uh, have a, we both have a mutual friend named Bruno Johnson. Bruno worked uh, at Cargo with Joel. Then he started the Disc record label. He was working at uh, Jazz Record Mart downtown. So Bruno had sort of his uh, take on things too, and his perspective on things was a man of few words. Uh, but you know, when the words are something like "what a bunch of fuck ups." 
<laughs> right. Yes. You know, I mean, uh, you know pe- where it's coming from. People, people in the music industry don't, don't, in general, don't tend to be good business people. So it's a common excuse. Probably. Yeah. yeah. It's a common yeah. excuse. Yeah. You know, um, well, that was a funny sort of a folk tale at Cargo when I worked there because uh, for a while I had the job of talking to uh, our foreign accounts to uh, get money from them when they owed mm-hmm. us money. And I was talking to someone uh, at an Italian distributor uh, and he thought, he knew I was connected with Cranky, so he, he, he called me Mr. Cranky. And one of the things he said was, Mr. Cranky, we love music. <laughs> As if that was enough. Right. For me to go, oh, well, then just, you know, well, let's just put this $3,000 invoice aside uh-huh, between right. us lovers of music. <laughs> and, I, and I had to play the ugly American. And I said, that's great, but I'm an American and I love money. Uh- <laughs> so, you know. Send yes. me some money. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's a it's a common excuse, you know. Uh, my wife and I are having uh, the bathrooms in our house renovated by people who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Because you know, my I grab a hammer and it heads toward my thumb. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I don't undertake things I don't know about and I can't do. Mm-hmm. I love having a bathroom. Right. I love taking a shower. Right. I can't, I'm not a plumber. I'm not an electrician. I'm not a carpenter. I'm not going to do those things. Right. If I wanted to do those things, I would learn how to do them before I started. Sure. Them. Yes. No. So, you know, it's a. I find it's a common excuse. Some people are really naive about what they're getting into, and they should, you know, think about it in, in the biz, in the music business. Sure. But in a lot of in a lot of terms, I think it's a People use it as a, well, I don't have to be good at what I do because, or even think about it because I like music. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. You wouldn't put up with that at a, at a restaurant. No. Like, no. I like food, but I can't fry an egg. You know? <laughs> so at, at, at some point, um, 2005, whatever, you decide mm-hmm. you're going to wrap things up. What, what was the impetus for that? Um, I had, I had the job of promoting cranky things. And as things began to move into the downloading era, into the digital distribution era, uh, I was growing more and more frustrated. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my work was not as effective as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, we were not the only label having those problems. Sure. Uh, we were not the only people who couldn't, uh, couldn't respond to those challenges effectively. As, you know, as I later came to realize, we could have sold digital things ourselves. It would have taken a huge amount of money. Sure. Hmm. Um, to you know, get the server space to put things up digitally, and uh-huh. not to mention hiring people to do all the uh, all the work involved in getting the back end of that going. That was frustrating. I knew I was 
you know, I was getting into my mid forties, late forties. I knew that I couldn't keep talking to 18 year olds about music for the rest of my life. Yes. And, uh, yeah, no, I decided, yeah, no matter decided, how passionate you are about it, you know, I mean, it, there is still a gap there. There's a gap there and it's sort of a young person's game. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. It's, um, it's funny for me now to talk to people who are around and who are my age or, you know, around my age. I mean, uh, you look at all the great things that were going on in Chicago and you're going out three, four nights a week to see bands, or you're going to record stores on the weekend. Um, I didn't do those. I didn't want to do those things mm-hmm. that much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I had and have a serious college football addiction, which means four months out of the year, I'm going to be totally focused <laughs> on the maize and blue. And uh, the internet comes through and all of a sudden, hey, I can, you know, I can read about an RPI versus a three three five de- defense. Uh-huh. My, a lot of my priorities were switching around. I had a steady girlfriend who became my wife. And so that uh, involves a level of commitment and attention uh, that was different than what I was doing as a freewheeling, unattached bachelor. Uh-huh. Um, so it was time for a change. Uh-huh. Change is good. And so based on that, and you know, you're living in Urbana now, right? Um, mm-hmm. What's it going to take for you to change over to the Fighting Illini instead of the Maze and Blue? I don't change. <laughs> I don't change. Now I can just watch the wreckage of Illinois athletics up close. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, you know, uh, those who know, know, but there's a phrase... Uh-huh. Uh, that someone has a cotton picking maize and blue heart. Yes. Uh, that's, yeah. It's too late for me to change. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, wouldn't want to, you know, that's the, that's the other form of fanaticism. Mm-hmm. So, so any regrets from stepping away at that point uh, over the years? No. You know, there were, there's some frustrations of uh, having a working life. Uh, going through a couple of recessions, uh-huh. economic collapse. You know, 2008 was not a happy year for me. I was working for a uh, a business-to-business publisher in downtown Chicago that uh, did a lot of uh, work around mortgages, credit cards, things like that. You know, mm-hmm. bottom drops out. That was not fun, but um, I don't I don't regret it. There are a lot of things I miss. I miss, Uh you know, I miss some friendships, but uh, life goes on. Sure. And, you know, for a a long time, I still lived in Chicago and had all the benefits of living in the music scene and adopting that. And now I have, you know, the benefit of actually being able to sit down and talk to people about music and Uh they listen to me. Uh Yes. So what were your uh, formative influences musically? Was it, did it come from an older brother or friend? What led you into, I assume, you know, sort of alternative punk mm. rock, new wave? That's a, that's a really good question. No one's ever asked me that. Huh. Um, so I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Uh, when I was growing up, 
Um, Syracuse was a backwater. Not much going on musically. So, for example, the um, there was one FM radio station that was playing top 40, which was nice in a way, uh, because that meant I was listening to, say, Queen and the Spinners in the same mm-hmm. flow of music. Sure. Uh, which I loved. I, um, I was a huge Queen fan in high school. I wrote a paper on it, my senior English class. <laughs> Other kids were trying to decipher Bob Dylan. I'm like, are you nuts? <laughs> How pretentious can you get? <laughs> um, so th- those are my enthusiasms. The first, uh, I had heard little bits about punk rock, you know, from Time Magazine or whatever. I had no idea what they were talking about. So one week, I remember this vividly, I was listening to the King Biscuit Radio Hour. Do you ever listen to that? It was a radio show. Mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. sure. And they, you know, live from Australia, here's this band ACDC. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's punk rock. It's loud, nice. it's fast. The singer's obnoxious. That's got to be it. A couple of days later, a friend of mine has the first Van Halen record. Oh, this has got to be punk rock. It's loud. The singer's obnoxious. Mm-hmm. They played the cover of Kink song. Uh, there was one punk rock band in town that would play uh, a couple of uh, originals and they would cover uh, like Baby Blue by Badfinger. They were really mm-hmm. more of a, really more what, you know, you would call a, uh, a pop punk band or maybe even, you know, they're more in the line of the uh, Knack or something like that. I didn't mm-hmm. know. 18 years old, I had no idea. Um, but I began to accumulate records. Uh, then I went off to college at the University of Michigan, and I began to accumulate more records. They have an awesome freeform radio station there connected to the university, WCBN. Listen to that religiously. Uh, it was this liminal period between the end of the MC5 period, mm-hmm. the beginning of hardcore of punk rock, so you had like these sort of MC5 people working in various bands like the Cult Heroes or Destroy All Monsters. I would come across them. Also, it was an amazing time uh, for jump R&B, rockabilly. I remember seeing Robert Gordon. Uh, and these bands came through town, so Susie and the Banshees, the Specials, Gang of Four, seeing all these things. Uh-huh massively energizing to me. Um, I think I think three of us here saw Gang of Four in Champaign, Illinois. Mm-hmm, for sure. I saw them, I think, four times in the space of one calendar year. I would just go anywhere they were. Yeah. So, um, d- at, at the point where you guys are starting Cranky and... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's already some labels uh, going that have had some success. Certainly, Touch and Go had been around for a while, but you know, Drag City, 
Um, and then, you know, at some point, Thrill Jockey comes to town and Bloodshot. There seem to be some some really well-run, successful um, I- I indie labels at that point. Um, was it something to do with Chicago being the right place, the right time? Or, you know, because, you know, a lot of labels come and go. Mm-hmm. And there's really been some lasting, successful, well-run labels. I think it's a couple of things. Uh, one, the locale of Chicago, which you know, uh-huh. I spoke about before. Uh-huh. Dan Osborne and Dan Koretsky both worked at Kaleidoscope with me. Uh-huh. Uh, both of them have very, been very heavily involved with WNUR uh-huh. in Evanston. I think they were both, I know Dan Osborne was music director there for a while. Uh-huh. So they had the background, they had the experience, they had a wide musical knowledge. And they too, I remember vividly, one of those guys, or both of them at some times when we're working at Kaleidoscope, they, I got the first self-titled Royal Trucks album from them. Basically, you know, they shove it in my hands and say, uh-huh. this just came in, you need to get this. Uh-huh. Same thing with the first pavement single. This just came in, you need to get this. And they start Drag City off with those uh-huh. two. So they were sort of they were a precursor to how Cranky started. This idea that these these guys had access to all these things coming in through the distributor, and they had the knowledge and the vision to pick out something that was different from the pack. Um, you know, Corey and, and Lisa and, Rusk, had been and they and they found it. something that inspired them. Yeah, you know? exactly. Because I mean, you need that. You need that. You know. If you're going to do all this work, mm-hmm. and if you're going to if you're going to look at this big hill you have to climb, you better be inspired by the music. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who do that, who aren't inspired, the music have a an inheritance of some kind. Right. Yeah. They can they can afford to squander. Mm-hmm. Um, Corey and Lisa Russ. Corey had you know taken part in the growth of Touch and Go when it was in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Taking over what was was in Detroit, they're running a venue, so they were establishing what they were doing when they moved to Chicago. Bettina at Touch and Go at uh, Thrill Jockey had worked for a major label, mm-hmm. knew the score, and mm-hmm. put out a bunch of a couple of singles on her own before she moved to Chicago. Uh, all the people that I can think of who started these crucial ongoing record labels had gotten experience in Chicago or somewhere else mm-hmm. before they started. So they uh, they had dipped their they dipped their feet into the pool and had walked around in the muck for a while. Yeah, and they, and they kind of they understood what was ahead of them. You know, what, what, what the amount of work that they would have to put in for it to be successful. Right. And also, in a way, you had to have that, um, and to have that effort attitude. To say mm-hmm. we're going to do this and it'll work or it won't work. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to do it and see what happens. Yeah, you seem to make a um, case for Le Bradford and the uniqueness of the band, and maybe. Um, I mean, this is what I took from reading it, that maybe they haven't received their due as uh, influence-wise versus someone perhaps like Tortoise. 
Um, is that a fair assessment? And that's a fair that's a fair assessment of what I wrote. Yeah, and um, much respect to Tortoise, and maybe the fact that they were and are so skilled and so imaginative means that they were never going to have many impersonators or they were never going to have many influence, mm -hmm. many bands, mm -hmm. because a lot of people looked at them and said, oh, we can't do that. Sure. There are a couple of groups, this right. band called Mice Parade, you know, I can name. Right. I remember Mice Parade. Because yeah. that's what I do, right? So that's yeah. what we do. I can remember groups that were sort of working the same side of the street, Uwe, another band. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Uwe, but, yeah. But really, there's no, um, you don't pick up band camp, you don't look at band camp and see a, uh, this month in two drummer, two bass player <laughs> post-rock bands. Yeah. You just don't, you don't see it. But you do see uh, this month in ambient music. Yep. Mm -hmm. Every month. And uh, you do, you know, I, I hear their influence that is what Bradford's influence over time, and I see it, uh, and the very and the veins of what they do are discernible. I think in what other mm -hmm. bands have done since then, and other bands are doing. Um, and I just, I I thought, and I think that they uh, they deserve some credit for that. Right. And they sort of had a problem. I had a problem as a person promoting them because they're too accessible for people that are for serious experimental or electronic music, uh, but they're too abstract for indie rock. So mm -hmm. they fall between these, Bradford fell between these two stools sometime. Yeah. You know, they're, um, so that, that was hard at the time to get them the attention I thought they deserved. Mm -hmm. uh, over the long run, I think it means a lot of people have come to appreciate them and take hints from them over time because they were unique enough and innovative enough to inspire people. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, something that um, I sort of discovered going back to Precision um, is the uh, couple things, but the tune accelerating on a smoother road, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. For some reason, Wire came to mind, and I should have known better the song by Wire in a yeah. weird, in a weird inside-out way. And then also um, with the treatment of vocals and stuff, I also had never uh, thought of Slint in in that sort of uh, uh, classroom as well. Um, so that was really interesting for yeah. me. Sort of the um, the Slint sort of. Slint and Mark Nelson from Le Bradford and Pan American shared that sort of deadpan, mm -hmm. almost, yeah. almost narrative mm -hmm. type vocals. Yeah. Did did Le Bradford ever speak of uh, like their influences? Like who was really um, uh, uh, influential for them? Oh yeah. Um, Mark. I think I mentioned it in the book, if I didn't mention it in the interview, going to see Galaxy 500. Okay. Um, and uh, Carter was a huge Yes fan, but he's also a big fan. Yeah. And, and it all worked out, nevertheless. Sure. Uh, Mark, uh, our, 
who was also, uh, Carter was also a big fan of this industrial slash what we call dark ambient band now called Arcane Device. Yeah. Um, so there were this interesting mixture of influences, you know, um, mm-hmm. Mark and I have talked about, you know, he has a healthy supply of ECM records on his shelf in his house. Um, the more, you know, the, the more liquid mm-hmm. type stuff that yeah. that record label put out. Mm-hmm. And then um, the band to my, you know, the first record's great. The second record when Bobby Donnie joins on bass, mm-hmm just began to expand the possibilities for them. And Bobby was in the crucial band, Breadwinner, which were um, what what we would call math rock now, but were uh, you know, just, a, just an amazing live band. And mm-hmm. um, so he brought in, he brought in a certain something too, that to my mind just opened up the potential for that group in which they showed in the, you know, the other records they made once she joined. Hmm. Did Monster Truck Five ever release a record? They did some records, I think, on Man's Ruin or one of those garage oh. labels. Okay. Um, the the lineup of the band switched around a lot. I know that, but okay. they were they were an incredible band. Though the first single was great, and uh, I think I told I think I told Joel we saw them. Forget the name of this band. The, venue but it was a second story venue in town somewhere it's across from muskies that hot dog place oh um i forget the name of street right across from elbow room Uh, batteries not not batteries not included not batteries not included is after that but anyway Uh, monster truck five like sounded to us like someone kicked pussy galore down the stairs (laughs) (laughs) and someone else was recording them right um yeah, that was a that was an interesting. That was a uh, you know, there's I I'm assuming there's a parallel universe somewhere where Joel and Bruce signed Monster Truck Five. <laughs> <laughs> things get really interesting. Do you well, have it uh, at, at some point to to get to the point you decide you're going to write a book? So yeah. you're you're was stu- was stupid, incredible. All our listeners would love it. We're we're a Chicago centric podcast, so I mean, mm-hmm. writing about Chicago, but also writing about what it was like to run a label. Um, there is there is something there for everyone. So uh, um, everybody should buy it, right? Um, well, buy multiple copies. For <laughs> multiple copies, family. exactly. Yes. Um, uh, how long ago did you did you start? How long did, did it take to do it? Um, um, w- you know, how, was it a struggle? Did it come easy? Mm, it did not come easy. Okay. Um, it did not come easy because it's you know the first book I've written. I wrote uh-huh. uh, I've written for fanzines. I've done interviews, record reviews, things like yeah. that before. Um, yeah, we did a podcast with Bob Mayer, and and the replacements yeah. book was his first book, and he's like, I did everything wrong, you know, I'd be so much better the second time around, but first book is really hard. You'd hope so. Yeah, you'd hope better. <laughs> um, for me, there were two, there were two processes. The first process was initiated because Jessica Hopper, uh, the fine fine writer and editor, uh, 
had gotten a job at the University of Texas Press as an acquisitions editor, and she put out a call for proposals. And I got in touch with her and said, hey, I've, you know, I've always been thinking about writing this book about this stuff. And she was very uh, positive, encouraging, gave me a template for a proposal. So I worked on that for, I think, six to eight months. Hmm. Um, then I got an email from the press, from Casey Cottrell, my editor, when my wife and I were camping in northern Wisconsin, or Illinois' hat, mm -hmm. as we like to call Wisconsin. <laughs> and uh, I moved forward with that. And then I took it, I was just looking at emails the other day to try and trace out how long it took me. It took me about a, eight months to a year to write the book. Went through a couple drafts. Casey and Jessica were hugely helpful uh, in getting me to focus on things. To mm -hmm. because at the beginning, um, I wanted to be thorough and informative, and the uh, first drafts are kind of dry, as my wife would say, baseball cards. I wanted to move beyond this person and mm -hmm. this at this right, time. Right. Right. Um, and then uh, at a certain point, a couple of people, including Jessica, told me, we need to see more of you in this book, Bruce. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay. <laughs> you really want that? Because uh -huh. uh, maybe you've detected that I'm not share I am not shy about sharing my opinions. <laughs> correct. Uh, correct. Um, so there so, was so there was some evolution as to what your initial vision was for the book to what it ended up becoming. Yeah, kind um, of a gradual progression, or once once it became a reality. Uh, and I hate to I hate to bum anyone out about uh, the artistic intentions behind the book, but I did think about who would be reading it and who would mm -hmm. be buying it. Sure. Mm. Yeah, and so I realized that uh, there had to be, there had to be uh, portions of the book, uh, an approach that would give people points of reference they might recognize. So uh -huh. I had yes. to tell a bit of the story of Smashing Pumpkins and Liz Fair and Veruca Salt uh, to give people reference points and to really to put the put everything else in context. Uh -huh. Uh, to give, to give a, a well as well-rounded a portrayal of the time in Chicago as I could, um, and so uh, I endeavored to do that as mm -hmm. well. Um, so it was um, it was a tough process, I would say. Uh, you know, you write to rewrite. Sure. And then uh, it was a tough process honing things down, uh, making some decisions about bands to include or bands to exclude. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, there's a, there's a label in Chicago called Project who do a lot of things on the goth side of the street. Mm -hmm. So a lot of records really important uh, in their world, uh, but I didn't mention them in the book. I 
easily could have. Mm-hmm. I didn't you know say much about bloodshot. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I easily could have. Right. That would have just made the book longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you know not not quite the best it could be. Um, so it was work. Uh, the latter part of it, the, the toughest thing about writing all these things, because I'm working on a proposal now, is knowing when to quit, when mm-hmm. enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, when you've made right. your point. Um, so that was, I would say, of all the things I did, the, the two biggest challenges were how to put myself into the book uh, and gain whatever uh, advantages from my experience and my right. voice uh, right. could add to the book. And then when to wrap it all up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's how it went. Excellent. So um, at the point where they decide they're making a movie out of You're With Stupid, who plays Bruce Adams? First of all, <laughs> I have retained the movie rights. Okay, good. I made a point of that in the contract. Mm-hmm. Nice. I have movie and TV rights. I see it more as a Netflix series. There you, there you go. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I see my role in the TV show as being a disembodied narrator's voice. Mm. Maybe okay. with some point of view. Like uh-huh. It would be great to have uh, Bruce as a camera moving through the touch and go party. Sure. Yeah. That would right. be wild. Yes. Yeah. And of course, you'd also have to do a cameo in in the series, right? No, no, right. no. Keep me out of it. Okay, all right. Keep me out of it. Just like I said, the the disembodied narrator. Okay. The disembodied omniscient narrator. Excellent. You know, the Good. kind of guy who goes, "What Kurt Cobain didn't know was that outside, Courtney Love was stalking him." That sort of stuff. So who is the actor? I don't know. Awesome. Okay. So these are very, these can be very short answers and you can say pass too as well. Sure. Uh, Favorite band of all time. Rod the Hoople. Nice. Um, Favorite memory of a cranky show. That's a little tougher. Yeah, or maybe just um, one of them. There was a there were, uh, there was a show at Shuba's with uh, Godspeed You Black Emperor and Low. I was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I know rem- what I'm talking about. And I remember. And I should have listed Shuba's in my favorite venue. Actually, there you go. Was, and I remember Alan getting on stage and going, "It's hard to play right now after that, or or some such," because it was so over the top. Godspeed. Yeah. Um, did Billy Corgan ever invite a cranky band out on tour? No. Should he have? Sure. Yep. <laughs> and finally, um, do you have an anecdote uh, regarding uh, Mimi Parker and or Lowe? Mm. This is tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Lowe played in Urbana in April. It was her... Second to last show. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when uh, I learned that Mimi had cancer. So from a personal perspective of grief and regret, mm-hmm. that is 
memorable. Yeah. What I would prefer to think of uh, is a time when we saw them play in Milwaukee. And uh, this was for one of the, I think it was for either Things We Lost in the Fire or Secret Name, one of those two records. They're on tour. Uh, and at that point, uh, the daughter had just been born. So they were taking her out with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and their friend DJ Starfire, the great song is written about, was The Nanny. Uh, it was a tremendous show. It was, I think, was on the east side of Milwaukee around where uh, UW-Milwaukee is. In the, it might even been at the, oh, it was at the Milwaukee School of Engineering. <laughs> and uh, my good friend Keith from Detroitson showed up at the show and I have a love the Detroitson guys from my time at Touch and Go before my time at Touch and Go um, and so that was uh, that was a special show uh, and then next morning we all had breakfast together this whole group of people uh -huh. uh, and it was it's just very warm memories of being with those people of sharing like this mundane but uh, sweet and savory maybe that's the way to describe it uh -huh. the two the two great tastes of breakfast uh, and the, that's the memory I hold on to a lot these days awesome yeah. Well, thank you for yeah, sharing that. Absolutely. Um, I, and, and maybe UMG will give them their, their records back. I don't know. Uh, people have tried. and yeah. talked to Joel about it. Uh, lawyers have tried. Yeah. I'm, my biggest fear is that the masters are gone. You know, they had a big fire. Mm-hmm. Right. UMG had a big fire at a warehouse. Yep. That's, that's oh. my greatest fear, aside from the difficulties of prying it loose sure uh is the fact that those those idiots may have lost them mm -hmm. yeah i saw low first show in chicago and then thereafter they played empty bottle and i remember um long division came out and i just said hi to alan before the show and how much i liked them blah 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 and I think I said something like, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I was trying to find the vinyl of it. And he goes, oh, wait a second. And he goes out to their van and brings me in <laughs> the copy of Long Division, which I got mm -hmm. out yesterday, which is a clear vinyl. And it's just like, here you go. And I'm like, can I pay you for it? Please, here's, he's like, no, 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 it's on me, man. Thanks for supporting the band. And uh, just amazing, amazing uh, human beings and art. That sums it up i think mm -hmm. just you know a pleasure to be around yeah no matter what your role was whether you you know you're a fan other musicians in my case you know a fan who became uh had the opportunity to work with them you know you could probably you could probably go to any club that that band ever played in and talk mm -hmm. to the people that worked there right. and they would tell you that they were the nicest people they right, ever had right. to right. work with yeah Awesome.
Okay, um, we've, we've, we've been going for quite a while here, um, and we always wrap this thing up with some Chicago questions, and you're okay. the perfect perfect person to ask because you spent a ton of time in Chicago. Um, and the first one is our, is our, is our normal uh, thick versus thin pizza. So do you have a preference? Thin. Okay. Any, and, Tavern any, cut. And, and, yeah, exactly, Tavern Cut. Um, any places that you loved when you were living here for Tavern Cut Pizza? It's kind of nuts. Well, I always like Pequod's. Uh-huh. Um, I love to go to Gulliver's. Mm, yeah. Yep. On the four nice side, just yep. for the uh, sensorium right, right. <laughs> around you. <laughs> the whole experience. Uh-huh. Um, and I would order takeout from father and sons all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Excellent. So that's, that's my pizza answer. Um, my wife lives a tragic existence. She's a... Uh, Born and raised in Waukesha, Wisconsin, <laughs> and she is lactose intolerant. Uh, oh, uh, tragic existence. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we were just in New York last week, and I couldn't get any New York pizza. And I'm like, but I want to fold it. Uh huh. <laughs> yes. That was that was sad, but yeah. Uh, favorite uh, Chicago uh, music venue or venues? Mm. There's so many good ones. There's so many good ones. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to uh, say Park West. Wow. Oh. We've had a couple people say that. Um, good sound system, comfortable tables. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, good bar. I mean, I miss the lounge eggs terribly. But yeah, it could right. be a very uncomfortable experience <laughs> if I'll it was a big show and right. people right. were people were crowded in. Um, I just ran into Allison Hanahan, who uh, is living in New York now, but who was tending bar at the Empty Bottle back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, I enjoyed going to the Empty Bottle uh, to drink and schmooze. Sound-wise, there's a sweet spot in there somewhere yes. that if you can't get to it, mm -hmm. not so great. Yep, right, let's, exactly. Let's be honest here. Right, and it's not over by the bar, so. No, it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, yep. it's not. So I, uh, I enjoyed going to the, I enjoyed a lot of the parts of the empty bottle, but trying mm -hmm. to, sometimes listening was not always as uh Productive as mm -hmm. um, How about uh, um, favorite Chicago bands, bands that were from Chicago? Um, the Jesus was in. Yep. We're not native Chicagoans. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of somebody that normally people wouldn't talk about. Trying to trying to be that uh, that guy, mm -hmm. um, but I saw so many bands for so many years. Uh, the DKV trio, mm -hmm. Ken Vandermark, mm -hmm. Kurt Kessler, and uh, the drummer whose name now escapes me. It shouldn't. The 
not only one of my favorite Chicago bands, they they play, I think, once a year now. Oh, Hamid Drake. Mm-hmm. Hamid Drake, yep. Ken Kessler, huh. Ken Vandermark. Yep. Okay. The best mm-hmm. ever. And one of the best bands in the world, period. So I hate to say it, but move them above the Jesus Lizard. Wow. Awesome. Uh, do you want to continue with the list? Do you want to finish? Go ahead. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, what have you been listening to lately? Um, I'm going to have to check something here. My favorite record from last year. Nice. Uh, was from this guy who... Uh, and the name is uh, of Afghan origin. So I'm going to grossly uh, grossly mispronounce it. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's a guy who had been playing psychedelic music, uh, but came across a bunch of cassettes from his parents of Afghan street music from before the... Uh, the Soviet invasion, uh-huh. and it's ass kicking. Wow, it's just amazing. Uh, and it is now Jawan Baydar is the name of the band. Hmm. Absolutely incredible. How how would you describe the music? Is it, is it rhythmic? Is it? Uh... It's hugely rhythmic. Yeah. Basically, he took this these tapes and this approach to music that had a lot of Afghan percussion, Afghan Central Asian mm-hmm. percussion, mm-hmm. put in an electric bass underneath it to motivate it, plus uh, played like electrified string instruments. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like a band from Holland called Lewsberg, L-E-W-S-B-E-R-G. Okay. Um, uh, Fax from mm-hmm. Chicago. Yep. Love them. The off, literal offspring band Lifeguard, uh-huh. who are yep. really amazing. And it's like, I know you kids know about your dad's band, <laughs> but who told you about all these SST bands like Slovenly? Yes. You know? uh-huh. How did you, how did you figure that out? Uh-huh. Um, yep. So I like that a lot. Um, Yeah, those are those are about the things. Okay. I like Tomb okay. Bold from Toronto. Okay. The death metal band. Mm-hmm. Nice. Like, uh, you know, good death metal is like bebop. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see what else here. Because I got the... Um, Kevin, Kevin Martin from The, the Bug. Bug. Yeah. Has been doing a ama- has been doing amazing uh, ambient type dark ambient music hmm. under his own name, and I've been listening to that a lot. Okay. Um, and uh, a lot of uh, also a lot of music on the Canary label, which is all reissued, which is all compilations of stuff from the Greek diaspora hmm. post World War One. Really just this amazing uh 
it's basically whorehouse music. Hmm. That's like the Greek equivalent of <laughs> uh, the Greek equivalent of tango or of jazz music. Mm-hmm. It's all about uh, your lover being an opium dealer and running out on you and, and all that kind of stuff. There's one one recording he he released uh, by this woman named, again, I'm butchering these names, uh, Vera Momoglu or something, which is like uh, called I Am a Badass Chick. <laughs> and that's good. That's and then finally, I would say... Uh, a band from Austin, Texas, called Water Damage, on one two X the one two X U label, which okay. is doing interesting stuff wow. in and in and of its own. So they're a, they're like a power drone band, like three mm-hmm. drummers, five guitar players, wow. bam, bam, bam. Awesome, cool. Um, our 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 last question, and this is uh, um, how we wrap up every show. Um, is favorite cheap drink and typically you know we're drinking like a miller high life or a, a pbr although i was up in the up a couple of weeks ago at a snowmobile bar and mm-hmm. i was drinking a pbr and the 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 guy the snowmobiler said oh that's bad for your kidneys you should, shouldn't drink that you should drink something else so i got an old style instead but um, I don't drink cheap beer anymore. I hate lager uh-huh. and, yeah. and pilsners. I drank enough uh-huh. of them yep. when I was young. So I don't do, I just don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, uh, I love what Half Acre is doing. Mm-hmm. Yes, great stuff. So uh, I guess cheap, if it comes to cheap beer, I'd say Daisy Cutter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Relatively cheap. Right, yes. Uh, standard quality. Yes. Uh, yes. I don't drink uh, I don't drink spirits anymore. If I had to in a pinch, I drink vodka because it's all the same. Uh-huh. Right. Mohawk vodka is the same as Grey Goose. Don't let anybody fool me. <laughs> yeah, but it's, Grey Goose has a nicer bottle. <laughs> yeah, you pay for it too. Right. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's great. Um, as we wrap it up, uh, anything else you want to tell us about? Uh, obviously, people should buy the book, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, and, you know, uh, obviously, I would say from your uh, local bookstore or independent uh-huh, bookstore. Sure, right. Uh, Bezos has enough money. Uh-huh, yeah. Yep. Um, so, you know, unless uh, that would be, you know, you can also get it directly from the University of Texas Press, uh-huh. and their books are warehoused uh, in Chicago. Uh-huh. So they'll get to yeah. you nice and fast. Yeah, and they've got a lot of other great books too. Oh, and their music series is mind-bogglingly right. yes. good. Yep. Um, yep. A lot of great books. Uh, so check out check out their uh, website and see what you know. Mm-hmm. Save awesome. yourself some money and volume. Get that volume discount. Awesome. All right. Well, we, we've taken up enough of your time. We totally appreciate it. Best of luck selling the book. Um, and Thank look, you. Look forward to the next one. Well. Um, I'm working on it. Excellent. My final word is uh, I'm going to get myself together and meet the wife down at Urbana's uh, finest live venue, the Rose Bowl. Okay. As I like to say, the only Rose Bowl any Illini athlete will ever walk into. (laughs) All right. We got the last dig in. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruce. Appreciate it. Thanks, gents. All right. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. It was great meeting you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening today. We are no wristbands. We drink for free. 
Music, of course, has been provided by Merlin Wall. Please check them out on Spotify or on Bandcamp. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at No Wristbands and check out our website at NoWristbands.com. <laughs>